Hello, hello. Welcome back to the P2P Soapbox. I'm Marcy Maxwell, your P2P BFF and podcast host. And we have another great episode and rock star guest in store for you today. In the world of peer-to-peer, we often say we're like one big family, right? We share all kinds of common traits. We're hardworking, goal-driven, maybe a little bit type A, or is that just me? We're outgoing and we're deeply passionate about our causes and our desire to make a positive impact in the world. But beyond those often bubbly exteriors, we come from diverse backgrounds with unique strengths and different connections to our various missions. We know that peer-to-peer thrives on community and the most successful programs are the ones who prioritize relationship building and meaningful connections. And that is why it is so important for peer-to-peer professionals for us to bring our authentic selves, our unique skill sets, and our personal experiences to the table. And the most effective peer-to-peer leaders, they're the ones who recognize the value of this diversity and harness the individual strengths of their teams to contribute to the larger collective, which is ultimately going to drive growth in their programs and in their missions. Today, we have the privilege of hearing from one such exceptional P2P leader, Joe Apgar, the president of Pelotonia. Unlike many of us, Joe began his professional journey in the world of finance, or as he calls it, finance. A cancer survivor himself, he initially became involved with Pelotonia as a participant and team captain for his firm's corporate team, before taking on the roles of Chief Operating Officer and now President of the organization. Pelotonia, for those not in the know, hosts a thrilling three-day weekend of cycling, entertainment, and volunteerism. Since its inception in 2008, the Pelotonia community has raised more than $275 million for cancer research at the Ohio State University, the James Cancer Hospital, and more recently, the Pelotonia Institute for Immuno-Oncology. Pelotonia also ranked as number 12 on the 2022 Peer-to-Peer U.S. Top 30. Now, during our conversation, Joe will generously share insights from his personal and professional journeys, illustrating really how these unique experiences prepared him for his leadership role at Pelotonia and how they continue to shape his interactions with participants and with his team. We're going to dive into strategies of how he retains and cultivates his team by really empowering them to lean into their strengths. And he's going to share all kinds of other leadership lessons. So without further ado, let's give a warm welcome to the president of Pelotonia, Joe Apgar. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the P2P Soapbox. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. We are so happy to have you here as well. Um, We are coming toward the end of our um, first season of the P2P Soapbox and just knew that we had to have Pelotonia uh, join us as one of the rock stars of our industry. So I know I gave people a little bit of your background, but why don't you tell us yourself? Can you just tell us a little bit about your personal journey, your professional journey that led you to your role as the president of Pelotonia. Yeah, happy to. Um, 
so I grew up uh, in in Northwest Pennsylvania in a really small sort of farm town. And um, when I was seven years old, my five year old sister was diagnosed with cancer, and I think really impacted and changed the way myself and our family were thought about volunteering and philanthropy uh, in a big way because. Um, you know, she ended up being okay and and had lots of chemotherapy and and got through her diagnosis. But she had the, the really the good fortune of being a Make a Wish child, and so we got to go to Disney World, which uh, at the time was the most popular wish among kids. I'm I'm sure it's still up I there. I think it's it probably, still is. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. Um, they've built just an amazing facilities, and the whole experience was. I mean, it was unbelievable, and for what our family was going through at the time was exactly exactly what our family needed. Um, so we got really linked in with the Make a Wish Foundation in our family's early years, and um, you know, I think nothing builds you know a sense of community like going through an experience like that. Our mm-hmm. entire town rallied, and people are, are making meals, and you know, she was I think a kindergartner at the time, and so our school did things where um, there was a day where all the kids wore hats because uh, she had lost all her hair and, and was wearing a I hat. So all the kids wore hats. And so just our family's been the beneficiary of great communities, you know, mm-hmm. really my entire life. And I ended up going to school uh, in central Pennsylvania, at Penn State University. I studied finance. Uh, I really wanted to be a banker, uh, sort of work in the investment world and all that stuff. And um, I did that for the first part of my career. Um, I, I had the good fortune of landing a job in Columbus, Ohio, uh, where I still live today. And I moved out here in 2008 uh, to work in, in real estate finance. And I worked at a private equity firm uh, that was still is one of the largest owners of hotels in the United States, actually. Um, and learned a lot sort of in that business and, and really enjoyed my work. Um, but just prior to moving out here during my senior year of college, I got diagnosed with cancer myself oh, gosh. and, um, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer, uh, my very first week of my final semester of my senior mm. year. Uh, so my last semester of college, um, I had to call my parents, you know, tell them the news and I had surgery and then another surgery and sort of had a long road uh, to recovery. Uh, with some complications. And I was really committed to graduating or not pausing mm-hmm. my education. I wanted to graduate with my friends and I had this job in Columbus lined up. And so Columbus became, you know, almost like the North Star. Like if I could make it to Columbus in June of 2008, that meant things were going well enough. I was sort of charting my course forward and and that's what happened. And my first couple of years here, um, my care was transferred to the James Cancer Hospital uh, out here, which is part of the Ohio State University healthcare system. It's one of the biggest, I think it's the third biggest cancer hospital in North America right now. They're currently adding on to it. It's about to be the second largest cancer hospital in North America. Uh, it's a phenomenal research program. And around the same time I moved, uh, Pelotonia, the idea of Pelotonia was being formed. And so they had plans for an inaugural Pelotonia ride in uh, August of 2009. And I'll never forget seeing the signs. And I was not a cyclist at the time. 
uh, but just seeing the signs all over town and, and thinking, you know, what is this? And what's this bike ride all about? It benefits the cancer hospital. And it was a cancer hospital where I was a patient and my doctor, you know, was there. My follow-up was there. Um, I was not healthy enough to ride. So I was taking certain medications that sort of didn't allow me to get on a bike and, and ride. But two years later in 2011, I borrowed a bike. Uh, I, was, I was lucky that I had a really tall colleague because uh, I'm six foot five and he was also six foot five. And when you get to that height, bikes become sort of an issue. Yeah. You can't always just get the standard standard bike. And uh, my colleague, Bruce, uh, I'll, I'll never forget and I'll always be grateful for him. He loaned me a bike. He was a big cyclist. He loaned me a bike and uh, I trained on the bike all summer and I rode in Pelotonia in 2011. Uh, for the first time and completely opened my eyes to just all the benefits and outcomes that philanthropy can have when it's done really, really well and peer-to-peer fundraising and the value of being a part, an active part of a community through all the benefits, the mental benefits, the physical health benefits, all those things. And uh, I got hooked and I became sort of an avid rider. I became a team captain through rallying our the company I was working at at the time to, to grow our impact as a team. And um, in 2016, had the opportunity to, to join Pelotonia uh, full-time as an employee and jumped at the chance. And it was a role that was uh, a new role. It was a role that was, you know, come in and just help the organization be better. I didn't have a ton of responsibilities. I didn't have any direct reports. Um, but it was an opportunity for me to just take that one more step towards, you know, using my skills and, and having an impact. Uh, and to, the chance to have an impact early in my career, I felt like was a unique opportunity that I just couldn't pass up. Yeah. Well, I feel like there's a lot to unpack with your experience, but you just said the skills you had from, and I know you're a finance person when you call it finance, yeah. right? You're a finance yeah, right. guy. So, <laughs> That journey to this role is really different from a lot of other P2P program leaders. A lot of us, you know, we started maybe right out of college or have been grassroots fundraising for a long time, and you kind of took a different route. How do you think that work experience in the finance sector um, actually prepared you for the role you're in now? Yeah, I I think it's interesting. I, I think what I've realized is there's so many different pathways into this work. Um, and I actually coming out of college never even knew you could do this work. It, you know, it's one of those things I even hey. sure you hear it all the time. Yeah. You know, you, people's eyes really get opened when they realize you can have a career in this type of work. I think, you know, the type of work I was doing, uh, which was sort of really complex financial transactions and, um, you know, working with different city governments and working with, you know, investors that are all across the world. And um, it, it's really an exercise in in how do you take really complex systems and, and conversations and um, things where there's a lot of people involved and distill them down to their simplest form. Um, you know, I feel like the firms and, and people that do really well in the financial world are really great communicators. And I think the organizations and people that do really well in the nonprofit space are really great communicators. And so it's sort of that common theme of having really great communication um, is certainly a thread that's, that's really existed. 
I think the other thing I learned was, and it's no surprise to people that have, have worked in, in finance, the expectations are really high. You know, the it, it's a high stress level. It's, you know, a whole different environment. Uh, but what it really teaches you is, is how to have really high personal expectations and mm-hmm. um, in, in really high regard for your work and to present yourself really well. And that translates to any, you know, role yeah. in any industry, right? Where you want to be successful. And um, but I also learned that sometimes nonprofits kind of get a bad rap. Um, oh, and, yeah. you know, it's, it's thought of as, um, oh, that, you know, it's an easier place to work or it must just be so fun to work there. And, you know, fun equals relaxed and not stressful. And yeah. it's, it's not the case. It's in a lot of ways, it's actually the opposite. You know, we, we as a, an entire industry, sort of the peer to peer space and the nonprofit industry in general, we're under-resourced. Mm-hmm. Um, you're always, you know, scratching and clawing for the next dollar to, you know, from a fundraising standpoint, whether that's for your program or for your operational and overhead expenses. Um, there's a lot of complexities that go into just running the organization that actually don't exist in a lot of other yeah. organizations. And a lot of it comes back to uh, communications and money. And I was really fortunate to have a strong background in both of those. And and so I feel like that's translated really, really well. I think the other piece of it is having had cancer and been on multiple sides of that. Yeah. My sister go through it, going through it myself, just lends a whole different perspective on the work too. Yeah. Well, you know, working in, there's, there's stress and there's big goals and there's big projects in any type of industry, but there is... There is a, a life and death feeling in the nonprofit space, which can be good and bad, right? Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it applies positive pressure that makes people feel really motivated to achieve a goal because they know it's this bigger purpose. Now, there's a whole toxic positivity side of it too. But yeah. at the end of the day, I, I totally I totally hear you. With being a cancer survivor and a cancer patient, you know, a member of a cancer patient family, that you also have the unique perspective of getting involved with the program first as a participant, you know, yeah. so that's not often the case, right? So how, how do you think that your experience as a participant, how did that impact your approach to your job, to your staff, to the other fundraisers at the events? Like, how does that change your approach? Yeah, I think Palatine had such a, remarkable impact on me that first year as a participant and you know cancer can be and, and whether it's cancer whether it's any other disease or or anything like that always has such a negative um there's always a negative experience associated with it and there's tons of positives that, that come out of those experiences but you know cancer itself is you know it's a re- it's really tough to get the diagnosis and to have some stranger, a doctor sort of look in your face and tell you that you have cancer and, you know, you're not sure what the future holds and you feel really out of control. It can feel kind of hopeless. And uh, what a lot of really great peer-to-peer organizations have done is taken that negative experience and given people an outlet for Mm -hmm. it, a physical outlet specifically. And, um, until you've been through that experience, both going through cancer, but then also that positive physical challenge, yeah. um, you know, for me, it was riding a hundred miles in my first Palatania, 
you don't realize the value of that until you've been through that. And so, you know, riding a hundred miles is hard for anybody, but mm-hmm. um, when you sort of layer on top that, that hundred miles actually means so much more than just, you know, six hours on a bike. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it might be the first time since your diagnosis that you, you feel healthy. It might be the first time since your diagnosis that you feel in control of your mm-hmm. own body and your own decisions. And, um, it's very empowering and to meet so many other people in that first year and second year that felt that same way as me, but all a little different gave me this perspective that everybody's approaching, you know, Pelotonia or any other organization like this from their very own unique perspective with their own unique context and, you know, baggage and all of this stuff. And they're using the organization as a platform for good Mm -hmm. and a platform to empower themselves and to feel, you know, maybe whole again or feel like themselves again. And it's it's really emotional. And when you realize that, what you realize is as a, you know, now a staff member and someone leading the organization, we have the responsibility to to make the experience so, so good for everybody in different ways. And and it and what it does is helps us look at the whole experience sort of from beginning to end. And you know, the philosophy we have is we design, you know, if you think about our ride weekend, it's three full days. We design the three full days from beginning to end to really coordinate and be in harmony with one another. But we also realize that some people don't participate the first day. They might not come to opening ceremony or they might just come to opening ceremony. Maybe they don't ride even mm-hmm. or, or they're volunteering. Like their entry point into our experience looks different, but we want them to have the same outcome. And so thinking of every little nuance, every little detail is, you know, there's nothing that um, isn't important in our whole experience. And I think you sort of gain that perspective from being a participant first and having felt the emotions of the event. Um, you know, your brand as a nonprofit organization is how you make people feel. Mm-hmm. You know, we visually have a really cool brand and we've got yeah. green arrows and, and all these things. And, you know, at first blush, people think, oh, that's that's the Peloton brand. Our brand is really how we make people feel. And right. we make people feel really excited, really energetic, really hopeful and really happy. And that is what you're trying to deliver in sort of every moment uh, throughout the year. And and I think just having the context as a cancer survivor and a participant is is really helpful to that. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Brand is total sum of all of your experiences with the organization is what I've always heard. Yeah. Uh, So you began, so you joined in 2016, began your role as president in 2019. And we all know what happened after that, right? So as soon as you take the reins and the next thing you know, 2020 happens and like so many other organizations, all the organizations, we saw a huge drop off in in in-person events due to the pandemic. But your team has been one of the ones that really bounced back pretty quickly. And you brought that fundraising back really to pre-pandemic levels or almost there. So what do you attribute this bounce back to? And how has the program grown under your leadership? Yeah, COVID was so hard for everybody in so many different ways. Um, You know, I think as an organization that, like so many others, relied on in-person 
events, not only for the physical, just, you know, massive um, ride weekend in our case, but recruiting. You know, most of our recruiting was done uh, in a face-to-face manner. And of course, there's email and social media, but nothing nothing's better for recruiting than getting face-to-face with somebody. Yeah. And maybe that's a, a team lunch at a company or, or it's just one-on-one conversation with people. And that was immediately stripped away. And, and we soon realized that uh, our physical event in August would be uh, would be stripped away too from a physical experience. And what we did was really thought through what, what the purpose of Pelotonian people's lives was. And tried to simplify that as much as possible. And and what we came up with was, um, you know, we're lucky that our core activity of cycling was an outdoor activity. Uh, mm-hmm. And so cycling actually saw quite a bit of a boom mm-hmm. uh, in 2020 and 2021, just from a, a pure exercise and fitness standpoint. Um, but pe- people were really using Pelotonia to challenge themselves. And they felt like, challenging themselves made it easier for them to ask their family and friends for money. That's like, mm-hmm. you know, peer-to-peer yeah. fundraising 101. You yeah. know, it's, it's easier to, to challenge yourself and ask for money than it is to just simply ask for money. Uh, I'm doing this really hard thing. So will you do the easy thing and, and send me money? And we sort of tested with some community members through conversations on, you know, could that still exist in an environment with so much uncertainty without a physical event? Um, if we continue to push the content, we knew research continued to move forward. There was a lot of research happening, sort of cross-collaboration between COVID research, vaccine research, uh, cancer research. Um, and a lot of our researchers were actually pivoting some of their labs to study uh, COVID. And yeah. we tried to take advantage of that and communicate that to our community. Hey, we're not going to have a physical event. Um, but we still want people to fundraise. Here's some of the amazing work that's going on. We are going to design a moment in time in in August of 2020, where we did a live webcast, sort of uh, a live streamed event that was the culmination of a summer of people challenging themselves. And so we (laughs) stood up a new website. We created a new participant type, which was called the Challenger where you would sign up. There was no registration fee. We removed our fundraising minimums, uh, which, you know, was really risky. We had had fundraising minimums throughout our entire life cycle so far. And we asked people to to commit themselves to a personal challenge. Could be anything, whatever they wanted. Didn't have to be physical. A lot of them ended up being physical challenges. Um, And that our ask of them was to continue fundraising. And the Peloton community showed up. I mean, we raised almost $11 million. Uh, wow. And pre-pandemic, we were consistently above $20 million. And so it was a big drop-off. You yeah. know, it was an over 50% drop-off in fundraising year over year from 2019. But when we actually stood back and looked at the results, it was pretty remarkable, yeah. you know, how much was raised. And I think showed just the strength of our community. Um, our community doesn't exist because we have a bike ride. You know, right. we have a bike ride to celebrate the community that exists. Yep. And uh, in COVID proved that. And then in 2021, we had the chance to bring back the physical events in a much more uh, you know, moderated way and with lots of safety protocols, yeah. and lots of coordination with healthcare professionals in our city. And, you know, people were really excited to come back. 
we ended up raising close to $20 million in 2021. Um, but we had sort of had our sights set on 20 million. You know, 20 million is is a number that we feel really good about. And when you get into the 20s, it 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 sort of just feels like a, a big milestone. And yeah. uh, so we got really close to that in, in 2021. Last year we raised close to 22 million in 2022, which was a really good feeling. And it, it and there was still we were still doing some keeping some safety protocols you know, from the COVID times last year. So this year felt like the first year that we were back in a really big way. And we will be back to pre-pandemic fundraising levels. We are certainly back to pre-pandemic engagement levels and just the experience we were able to deliver. I think this was our 15th year. And I think our experience on Ride Weekend this year was the best event experience we've ever had. I love it. Yeah. So the event was just in August. So yep. we're recording this early October. The event was just in August. And then, oh, actually, you just came back from a, a test event this past weekend, right? Do you want to just yeah. give a sneak peek on that? Yeah. So we uh, we launched a gravel cycling event uh, and we had it this, this past weekend uh, on September 30th. It was, I mean, it couldn't have been better. You know, it's, it's September, the end of September in Ohio. Uh, you never know what the weather is going to be. It ended up being 70 degrees and sunny during the day. It was beautiful weather. We had 200 people come out and um, really not sure what they were getting themselves into. I think, you know, we have such a massive event every August. We have 7,000 riders. We have 3,000 volunteers. We probably have between 10 and 15,000 spectators throughout the weekend. And so an event of that scale, uh, translating it to more of a niche curated experience can be can be tough and prove to be challenging but we you know we got so lucky with the weather the the 200 riders that came had i think probably the best pelotonia experience they've ever had it felt like pelotonia because it was really well done mm-hmm. but nothing of it was a copycat of our ride weekend and so every component felt different our starting and finish line shoot was in you know the middle of a field through right you know, a gravel driveway and then sort of into actually into the expo experience with all the food. Like it was super cool. There was live music playing, folk music. We were in the rolling hills of Southeast Ohio uh, in an area called Hocking Hills. The course was the hardest course we've ever given anybody. Um, I ended up doing 30 mile course. It had 3,600 feet of climbing the 50 mile course had 5,600 feet of climbing. <laughs> so it was really challenging, um, incredibly safe ride. And, you know, the, the feedback so far, you know, we're only midway through the week, the feedback so far has been incredible. Um, you know, we're, we're working on putting the date on the calendar for next year and, um, feel like we've developed quite a good playbook for, for this event. And I think, in a lot of ways, we've talked about this before, like what's the future of peer-to-peer fundraising look like? Yeah. And it's hard it's hard to replicate and put on an, an event for 10 or 20,000 people. Yeah. Just the space needs, the costs, the labor, all, all of those things. And um, it's actually really hard to give a really high level experience to every individual. And that's what you want to do. You want to, you know, somehow individualize the experience for people. And it's hard to do that at scale. 
um, doing this smaller event and sort of curating to a niche population, I think is the future of a lot of really well done events. And so we were super happy with with it. Uh, I was tired on Sunday. Um, I was about to say, I'm amazed <laughs> you're not working from your couch right now. That's 100% what I would be doing. Uh, well, I, I love hearing about the innovation and you're trying new things. You've also been pretty upfront about the fact that, you know, I've made some mistakes in the past. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what maybe some of those mistakes were and and really what you learned from them? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, like I would say, we've made more mistakes than we, than we have, you know, sort of big wins and everybody gets to celebrate the big wins. Um, but mistakes are what help a team grow and help an organization evolve. And, you know, I think a lot of our mistakes, um, you know, might not necessarily be categorized as mistakes in other industries, but we in the nonprofit world and especially in the peer to peer space, um, you know, this is one of the, the things that really struck me as different when I came from sort of for profit land to the nonprofit land, which is there's really little room for innovation, you know, and there's little room for risk yeah. in the nonprofit space. Funds are, are limited, resources are limited. Um, you know, a, a technology company, Apple or Google, you know, think about how many, what their graveyard of failed projects looks like. Um, right. It's probably massive. And they've spent billions of dollars on things that nobody's ever seen because they didn't work out. Uh, if you do that as a nonprofit, you either go out of business or you you end up wasting donors' money, which, which people never get happy about. And so there's just, right. the appetite for risk is different. And, um, and so, you know, we've, we've certainly had some, some mistakes and missteps just with how we've approached, you know, technology in the past. And, um, you know, I, I shared at the peer peer conference a couple of years ago, you know, one of the mistakes we made really early was under resourcing technology and, mm -hmm. you know, almost being too careful about how we were spending those resources and not wanting to overdo it. Technology you know, technology is expensive and to do technology and whether it's a new website or installing a CRM or, you know, just bringing on that talent to your team seems like a really big cost. And it's, it's one of those things that's, um, you know, my dad always says like, there's a reason you buy, you know, you pay for expensive furniture because it lasts a long time. Right. right. And over time, it's cheaper to, to buy the expensive couch because you have it for 20 years than to buy mm -hmm. something cheap and have to replace it. And I think that's where, some of our early mistakes were, which was not investing enough upfront in whether it was the talent or just throwing the resources at a really big, meaningful, um, meaningful project. I think some of the other mistakes we've had were just being slow to communicate, you know, outcomes mm -hmm. even. And so we, we all have really high expectations of ourselves and we want things to be perfect. And, and I'm as yeah. guilty of this as anyone, uh, in, it's slowing things down to get, you know, that one more notch of perfection rather than just letting things get out into the universe and having people react to them. And, yeah. um, you know, whether you end up appearing slow or, you, you know, you're not the first mover in something you could have been the first mover. And, um, you know, and so it's, it's all things that have led to, you know, us getting better as a team. And, um, you know, there's been some things just event, uh, 
you know, event weekend, whether it's tweaking, you know, our starting shoots or our finish lines or how we think about rest stops and really little minute things that, that some people might see. But uh, for us, they're really big, big decisions. And, you know, there's been some things that we've had to unwind or, or come out mm-hmm. and say, look, that was the wrong move for us. And, um, and so, but it's, it, it's a constant learning process. And I think if, and you know this better than than most people. the The culture of a lot of nonprofits is to be really risk averse. Yeah. So, how do you, as a leader, balance taking really calculated risks, but also over communicating that it's okay if things don't work out and that people feel safe mm-hmm. uh, failing? Uh, maybe that is sort of the best way to put it. Where yeah. you have to create a culture of being where it, it it's safe to fail. Um, because it can seem like you're constantly towing that line of, of, you know, if you fail a little too hard in, in the nonprofit space, do you go out of business? Do you lose a big donor? Do you, yeah. you know, upset your big funder? Do you not fulfill a grant that, you know, you thought you were going to fulfill? And um, that's that's one of the real challenges of, of the space. Yeah. So you often talk a lot. You mentioned your team there. I know you also always talk really passionately about the importance of your strong team that you work to cultivate. So how how do you as the leader of the team, you know, create that work environment to really retain and cultivate the great talent that are going to support this large program? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, um, constantly networking, constantly just connecting with with people in terms of recruiting talent and and trying to create a pipeline of talent you know, for the people on our team, we've, we've always had a really great team, uh, but it's really tricky. You know, we're, we're constrained on pay. Um, and in some markets, you know, you think back a few years ago, you're competing with with companies who can throw money at employees that you just you you can't compete with. Mm-hmm. And it can be tough because it, it feels like on on one hand, it's it's almost an unfair playing field when it comes to compensation and some of the you know fringe benefits that that you're competing against. Uh, but what a lot of those other companies don't have is mission. Um, and, you know, how do you create a culture around your mission? And how do you, how do you really create a culture where there's a very short line between the people on your team and the people impacted by your work? And, mm-hmm. and so the, the longer that line gets and the further away people feel from the mission, the the easier it is to become disengaged and, um, you know, hard times, you know, can lead to, you know, burnout and things like that. But for us, how do we think about, you know, creating a culture where, you know, people come into our office every day and visit and, you know, we get to talk with cancer survivors and we have, you know, almost treat all of our team as like frontline employees to our community where everybody's really encouraged to get to events and to be a part of the community. Um, because the minute they feel that connection, with somebody or a group of people, or, you know, they hear a story or, you know, I, I have the fortune of hearing them all the time of people who might have gotten a new treatment that totally changed the course of their cancer experience for the better. Um, or even the opposite, you know, somebody who lost someone too soon, but, but has used Pelotonia to, to really get back to the yeah. person they wanted to be and to really help through their grieving process sharing that with our team and letting our team understand how important that is can help get you from sort of the minutia of the work into 
you know, really realizing that what we're doing plays an important, important role in our community. Um, I think, you know, you've got to pay well. And so I'm sort of always in favor of, I'd rather have a person or two less and pay, you know, try to pay more market um, and compete uh, for people and, and create an environment where, you know, we do work really hard. We put in hours, but people feel rewarded and compensated appropriately. And it's not to say money is the issue that solves things or is the, the ultimate motivator. But at the end of the day, people have student loans and rent and mm-hmm. um, you don't want to lose good people because you can't pay them what they're worth. Totally. And, um, so it's certainly a philosophy I believe in. And, and then I think, you know, the other thing I really believe in is taking a chance on people. I was been really lucky many times in my career, you know, starting when I was at Rockbridge and, and working in private equity. There's been many times when from the outside looking in, I, I would have been too young or too inexperienced to have gotten that promotion or to take on that project or whatever it has been. And I've had people that have advocated for me and, and supported me. Um, and so we try to do that with our team and, um, let people surprise you uh, with the things they can do and the, the things they can accomplish and the skills they can bring or, or the things they can learn. And if you create an environment where people feel like they have the opportunity to take on new things or to learn new skills and, and stretch and challenge themselves professionally, that in a lot of ways is more rewarding than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the long-term view, and, and we're constantly dealing with this as, as a leadership team, is how do we think about what's next for people? Mm-hmm. So actually on our annual reviews, you know, we have a section that we've put in, which is what do you want to do when, when you're gone from Pelotonia? Like what's the next thing after Pelotonia yeah. look like for you? Because if we know that, you know, we can one, help you plan for that to help introduce you to people that might take you, you know, a step or two in that yep. right direction. And for us to know that, you know, Everybody has their own individual careers and individual goals. And we, as a community organization, can have these people on our team who can do great work while they're here and can go on to do even greater things in their communities or, or, or pursue their own passions. And we can be their biggest cheerleaders and we can be the on yeah. yeah, to that. Like we owe that to people because people are giving us their time and their trust and, and their treasure while they're here. and. And I think that's a belief I have that all employers should do. I think, you know, one hundred percent, you should support people while they're on your team. But if people outgrow the role that they're in, and you don't have something for them, like you owe it to them to to help them find what's next. Because the I think one of the long term marks of success for an organization is what their alumni. Oh, one hundred percent. I had an old coworker who used to say the biggest compliment that she gets is if a former employee goes somewhere and has is well trained and well versed and prepared for the job, she feels like that's the best reflection on for her sure. as a leader that they're prepared for the next step and that's going to make people think, "Well, gosh, I want to hire the next person from that organization because that last one we hired was a rock star." So, I I love that and I think you, I feel like every time you and I talk, we could talk for forever yeah, on this yeah. element in particular. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I could echo so many comments you made about 
you know, the pay, the mission, and just all of those elements and and getting people, helping them figuring out what their joy is in their work. And sometimes finding out what do you want to do in the long run? It ends up highlighting that one piece of their job that maybe they could spend more time on. You know, maybe they love presenting, but they don't really have an option to do that that often. So it's saying, oh, okay, how do we get you, how do we infuse your current role with that skill that you either love or you want to develop so that you are ready for the next step? Yeah, 100%. I 100% agree. I love it. Well, Joe, so I know Pelotonia, the two events just happened in August and this gravel was last week. But if there are people sitting here going, this sounds amazing, where can I learn more? about Pelotonia, where where can we send them? Yeah, pelotonia.org. Um, you'll find all the information you need there and more. And, uh, you know, our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram. Um, and uh, give us a follow and, and come check us out. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a career section if everybody's like, hmm, maybe I there, need to go work there. Awesome. There is a career section. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'd, lo- we'd love to get some listeners uh, in on that. <laughs> I love it. Well, awesome. Well, Joe, thank you so much. This was such a lessons in your your leadership and your great perspectives. And so I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thanks for letting us, uh, us share a little bit about Palatine. We appreciate it. Absolutely. The P2P Soapbox is produced in partnership with True Story FM Engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is by Stephen Badal. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we hope you'll consider doing just that for our show. But the best thing that you can do to support the P2P Soapbox is simply to share the show with a friend or colleague. Thank you for listening.